Hi, everyone, and welcome to the newest episode of The Jay Davis Show. Uh, super excited to have Andrew LaFoon with us. He is the CEO and co-founder of Mixbook. Thanks for being with us today, Andrew. Hey, glad to be here, Jay. Nice to meet you. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for coming on. So usually where we start, just if you want to give a quick background and bio and kind of life story, uh, so to speak, that'd be great. Yeah, well, once upon a time I was born. <laughs> and then today, no, then we're here. So I actually, I don't know if it's an unusual background or not. I grew up in a small town, North Carolina, and I was the only kid I knew who was taking apart my family's electronics. And my dad was like, why don't you go outside and play sports? And for one, I was bad at sports. But for another, I was really curious about how things work. So I was constantly, yeah. I was known for breaking things. Anything I touched, I could break very quickly. Putting it back together, different challenge. There may be some <laughs> other entrepreneurs who have the putting it together part. Hey, I could break things. So my dad's like, I need you to stop breaking electronics here. Have this Commodore 64. We didn't have a lot of money. So they traded their couch for a Commodore 64. And I was hooked. Love it. And I ended up meeting another entrepreneur when I was 12 uh, who had started a website design consultancy. And he taught me the basics of the internet, how to code a web page. We actually made, stayed up all night, made music with MIDI, all these different things. And it was so inspiring. And that was the moment I said, that's what I want to do with my life. I want to start companies. I want to start companies in the internet space and the technology space because that is the way I can make an impact on the world. And I just love it. So, so that's awesome. how I got started. So uh, great. Then I can keep going. No, the story. I, yeah, yeah, love it. Fast forward, went to Berkeley. At Berkeley, I wasn't sure how hardcore to go in engineering. I started out in computer science and it was a little too hardcore for me. But business I found boring and ended up in this weird branch of engineering called industrial engineering where they were starting an entrepreneurship program. So I got in that and then I all, it opened my eyes to the world of venture back entrepreneurship. So the idea that people give you money and you can go build something that changes yeah. the world. So we are always brainstorming ideas, my co-founder Eric and I, and one day we happened upon this idea to democratize the yearbook industry. The thing we were interested in was every person has a story, every sports team, every group of kids Anyone has a story to tell, but it doesn't get told in the traditional yearbook. You've got 10 kids making a yearbook for 2000 and your story's missing. And that's true in life. If we, I had actually made a photo book before we started the company for two of my best friends, twins graduating from, uh, from college. And it was when they got the book, they said, this is one of the best gifts we've ever received. But the pro process of creating the book was extremely painful. And all you could do is just put a photo in a slot. So we thought, man, if we could actually solve the problem of creation, make it easy, and give the ability to put your own story to tell it the way you want, that actually matches what the yearbook space needs and it matches what the photo book space needs. That sounds like a great idea. That's what we started off on. And, you know, coming from Berkeley, democratizing all the things was the thing we were excited about anyway. Uh, so we, we had a lot of ideas, big ideas. It took us about a year to get to launch, which is very slow, but that is what it took because we're two kids out of college and no idea what we're doing. <laughs> and when we launched, it went up and to the right to a couple hundred users and then down and to the right to a couple zeros of users. <laughs> <laughs> That's how it always and goes. Like any good overnight success story, it started with an overnight failure. Yeah. <laughs> and there was no actual overnight success. <laughs> Don't tell the other entrepreneurs about that. Yeah. It's supposed to be entrepreneur overnight success, right? So from there, we actually took a while iterating, pivoting, launched the Facebook app that went viral, got to millions of users, raised money based on that. 
it was 2008, July 11, 2008, closed our million dollar funding round. IndyMac Bank failed. Showed up to our first board meeting with investors and they said, hey guys, good news, you got money. Bad news, you're never getting any more. You got to get the profitability. Yeah. So anyway, that's, I'm, I'm probably going into way too much detail on the story. No, I love it. In short, you know, we getting to product market fit was a pain. We were doing $600 in revenue a month. And what we were doing with the viral app just wasn't working. Nobody wanted to buy. People weren't sticking around. So we said, well, who are the people who are paying money? Let's talk to them. So we just started calling all of our customers and actually built relationships with a lot of them that lasted years. They became the voice that we listened to to figure out what do we do. And it was interesting because we realized they actually love the product and care deeply about yeah. it. And so because of that, we said, okay, there's something here. And we really just spent a lot of time with them and a lot of time iterating on the product. And next thing you knew, we went from $600 a month to actually making a million a year and then 4 million a year, the business took off. And in fact, it took off so much, we stopped innovating because it was almost barely possible to keep the website up. Uh, and a lot of things happened since then. We could talk about the pivots. We launched new brands that all failed. We launched a lot of new things that all failed. And that, but the core business kept going. The core business yeah. kept working. And eventually we realized, man, we should just keep investing in the core business. What can we do with it? And that's really been the key to the success. There's a lot of other pieces to it, but I think that's a good starter. Yeah. Uh, quick, quick summary today. We're uh, considered the number one rated in photo books in the U.S., probably number two in market share. And that's what we do is we help people make books like this. Go on a trip or take a bunch of photos with your family or just with friends. We help you turn it into a book. And you can customize it as much or as little as you want. You can do everything from like pixel perfection if you're a perfectionist, like many of our customers. Or you can use our AI tools to make it instantly in just a few taps right from your phone. I love it. Well, you've definitely democratized it. I have a, my oldest daughter is almost 14. And I think about two years ago, she used Mixbook to make a book for my wife. Uh, so when a 12-year-old, actually then, then a 11-year-old, uh, she was almost 12, can make a, a mixed book. It's, right. it's pretty uh, democratized. So I'm definitely a, a big fan and, and a proponent of what you guys do. So um, what, uh, uh, as you went through that and that history, what have been some of the lessons you've learned about growing? Because I, I, we were talking about this before we started. I think so often entrepreneurs spend so much time trying to just find an idea, find an idea, find an idea that will make money and people will buy. And then they do, finally. They have something that hits. And there's a lot of time still between, you know, you had that idea, 2006, you guys launched? That's a lot of history in those 17 years. What have been some of those surprising lessons you've learned in that time? A lot of them probably seem obvious, okay? So, but it's funny that the obvious dumb things the cliche, yeah. <laughs> tend to work. So yep. I, I think it's easier to start from when we made mistakes and okay. what did we learn from those? So yeah. a couple mistakes. One, not spending enough investment in clarity on why we're doing this business in the first place and okay. building a culture around that. A lot of people told us, oh, you need to have core values. You need to have mission. I was kind of terrified, honestly, by that idea because Enron had core values and they looked pretty great. <laughs> yeah. They did. Go look it up. Their yeah. core values sound good but they didn't live it. And that's the reality for most companies. And you if you have a real authentic why behind your business or behind your life, 
that is going to give you superpowers. And it create as the, as the company scales, it creates a filter for what things are we going to do? What things are we not going to do? What, how are we going to do things? How do we respond when crisis comes? How do we respond when things change and don't turn out the way we expect? And that's where your core values and your mission really matter if you're willing to live them. I think yeah. that actually matters a lot more than I thought. We were not intentional at the beginning about it. We did it some things by accident. You, yeah. you get some culture for free. I, I like to say culture is who you hire, who you fire, and what the leaders do. Yeah. The founders. Yeah. You get a lot out of that, but there's a dissonance when you have no framework for people to buy into. The, the bigger the company gets, that's not enough. You, yeah. And you need to be able to very intentionally interview for it and do performance management based on it. All of that needs, it needs to be. And when you make decisions, do you use it? People bringing it up, people bringing up the core values, or people bringing up the mission as a filter because they should. Otherwise, it's probably not real. I think that's yeah. really important. I think another, and we ended up launching new brands and acquiring companies that just were off mission. Yeah. And part of the reason they failed was not because it wasn't a good idea. It just didn't fit us. Yeah. It didn't fit our culture. Didn't fit our why. And so it wasn't engaging to people. Another uh, pitfall that we made was not, was not getting disconnected from customers. I talked about how in the early days, we were on the phone with customers. I was on the phone with customers every day because I needed it. Yeah. Because it wasn't me. It's they are the customers. I built something for me and nobody else cared. When I built something for them, something great happened. Yeah. But I stopped that. And when I stopped, we started making stupid decisions. So I still talk to customers every week. My whole leadership team talks to customers every week. Not because it's the best source of ideas, but because it keeps us grounded and connected with who we actually serve. Like you start a company, yes, you want to make money. That's good. Yeah. But if you want to change the world for the better, then you need a why and you need a who. Who are you serving? Who are you solving problems for? I think great innovation comes when you've got this hard problem to solve for somebody and you care about it deeply. You care about it enough to go past the obvious solutions that aren't really going to solve it, that aren't really differentiated. Make something new. Yeah. No, I love that. I, I think that that's so true. And I think that's just a natural in business that you first start out and you're, you know, even if you're selling a physical good at, at the flea market or, you know, you're just selling it online, but you're talking to people. And when you get a buyer, you're so excited that you're like, hey, what do you think? And what's the feedback? And I think that that's so true as you scale and you start having, you know, hundreds of new customers a day, thousands of new customers a day, you start to almost feel like, well, we understand because they're all coming in and that's something with Pillowcube we've, we've called, you know, had our executive team call people who spend a lot of money with us. Like, why did you spend so much money with us? Um, you know, what did we get right? And then also call people who returned it and didn't like it. Uh, you know, it's so easy to get in that vacuum of fans and that's, I think the balance to kind of the love group recommendation is you can just talk to your love group all the time. You're like, we're amazing. And it's like, well, go talk to the people who aren't loving it as much. And so I love yep. that advice. I, I think that's amazing. So what, what do you think, or were there any things that you're like, man, we did this and just nailed it. Uh, anything that, that was kind of unexpected that maybe worked that you weren't expecting to work. Uh, and you're like, man, that, I can't believe that worked. Oh, I got a couple stories. Okay. So early on, Early on, when we were trying to get product market fit, right? I mentioned we were calling these customers and we were honing the product. 
there were some like dumb ideas that seem obvious in hindsight and then some other things that seem almost unbelievable. So dumb ideas seem obvious in hindsight. One, we thought we were going to win on price. We went after soft cover books, $10 a book. We thought that was the thing. Nobody cared. Everyone's asking for hardcover books. And I'm thinking, well, how much would they pay? So I start asking people. And they're like, oh, 30 bucks, 40 bucks, 50 bucks. I'm like, well, that's a lot more. That sounds nice. We launched hardcover books. Revenue went by, by 5x. It's it worked. <laughs> so, and it's like, yeah. okay, you thought a lot of times your assumptions going in are just really stupid. Yeah. And you won't know until it collides with customers. Another example, we had this app where the book, the book was $20 and we wanted to increase conversion. So we thought, oh, let's do a price test. We'll make it $19, $20, or $25. Guess which one had the highest conversion? 25. You are correct. Not only did it increase AOV, it increased conversion. Yeah. What the heck? It makes no sense. Well, actually it does because you realize it's a gift primarily. And when it's a gift, paying more adds more value. Yeah. Well, there you go. Yeah. Like wild though, these kind of wild things you wouldn't expect. So another example, when we were getting product market fit, we were trying to make our paid search campaign profitable and it was off by a factor of 16. Okay. You're like, pay a dollar and you get like seven cents. It was really bad. Yeah. And I'm thinking, okay, this is impossible. But I had a friend who was really good at it. And I'm like, well, why don't I bring him in? He came in, he just... Cussed me out completely. You guys are idiots. You're doing all these things wrong. Your ads suck. Your landing page sucks. The flow sucks. The sign-up form sucks. It all sucks. But if you do all these things, you'll be fine. I'm like, we're off by a factor of 16. He's like, who cares? I was off by a factor of 40. It's like, just because if you suck, that is no evidence of how good, how good it'll be when you don't <laughs> suck. Yeah. Like, that's actually a pretty good insight. So yeah. obviously that stuff doesn't matter at all if you don't have product market fit. Yeah. But if you have product market fit, you'd be amazed how much those little optimizations can change the game. Totally. No, so on the first thing, I, one of the things that I just love that you said, I think not always, but most entrepreneurs I talk to are trying to compete on price to an unwise degree. Like, it's like, we're better, we're disrupting, we're, we're, you know, better product. And it's like, no, you have the data to show that. So if you like have the data to show that, like our reviews are better, we add more value, here's all we're offering. And it's like, why are you competing on price? Well, you know, you got to be cheaper. And it's like, what? No, you don't. And I think that's just a natural feeling. And we've had similar experiences where, you know, it's not always about being the cheapest. Uh, a lot of times people want that value. They want to feel like it's, you know, and, and it can't be just fake, uh, you know, but it's, it's like, hey, like you said, with hardcovers, like the thought would be, we got to get this cheap. What can we cut out? What, we can, what can we get rid of? How do we make the product less, less expensive? And the customer's like, no, 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 add in things. And that's so counterintuitive. But like you said, once you realize like, oh, this is a gift and they're trying to impress the person they're giving the gift to and make them feel like the value is extremely high so that they feel like, man, they bought me a really nice gift. That's yeah, great advice. It's great advice. Uh, so what, uh, what do you feel like as you've gone through this experience, where do you feel like your expertise has started to? I mean, you started your career in development. 
is that where you still feel your expertise lies or has that shifted over time as you've built and grown a massive business? 17 years as a founder CEO, you're going to change or the <laughs> yeah. company is going to be stagnant. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I feel one of the things as an entrepreneur, if you want to build something that endures, you're going to have to be very adaptable and be willing to change a lot of things about yourself. Even your identity will probably yeah. change. I mean, it's extreme. Yeah. And you have to be highly self-aware. And I got stuck at times. And every time I got stuck, I'll tell you what, company follows. The company gets stuck too. Yeah. When I get stuck, the company gets stuck. So yeah, I used to identify as like, I'm the, you know, the young technical entrepreneur, Inc. 30 under 30, this, that, and the other. And I got stuck in that. And now, you know, what I've been geeking out on the last five years is leadership and culture. Because once you get to a certain size, that's the lever. Yeah. That's the lever that builds something that adores. And I actually have learned to love it. When I first looked at it, I thought leadership books were lame. You know, I, I might be weird. Maybe I was too prideful. Who knows? <laughs> I thought they were lame. And I'm like, I'm an engineer. I'm like, who cares about this stuff? It's all so fluffy. They all, you read the back of the book, you read the whole book. But I didn't practice any of it. Yeah. So in uh, 2018, I really had the realization that I wanted to build a healthy culture. I wanted to build based on culture first, because that's the lever that builds companies, a company that lasts for generations. And with the need that we're trying to solve, the company needs to endure. We're working on fundamental human nature problems, helping people be connected and creative. The core thing. Yeah. And so that's where the culture thing came in. And I really started to geek out, read a lot of books, realized I actually had no idea what I was doing. Got a coach, got two different coaches, and peer mentorship group, got another peer mentorship group. Just went after everything I could find because I, I was stuck. And when I got unstuck, oh my gosh, it changed the game completely. We actually put in place a real mission. We put in place real core values. I had to transition out a lot of people who didn't fit where we're going yeah. and weren't engaged in that. Not that they were not good people. They were great people, but they weren't right for where we're going. And, and that changed the trajectory of the company completely. And I could totally wax poetic about it, about all that stuff, <laughs> depending on, on what you think your audience is interested in. Well, I have a couple of questions there. Uh, one comment I would make is I think one of the hardest realizations I've had to come to is any growth company, uh, one of the hardest truths is that either the company will outgrow you or you will outgrow the company. And that's yep. really tough. So anyone who's joining a startup, I think, needs to be aware of that, of like, and, and if more people were aware of that, I think they would be going to their boss and like, hey, yep. I'm kind of like a zero to 20 people kind of person. Yeah. And that's where I'm the best and that's what I love. And I'm going to go find that thing where I can be that again. Um, so anyways, that's just something that I feel like we've we've seen a lot of. Uh, go ahead. I would agree. And I'll add a thought there. Early on, we we hired a lot of new college grads. We had no money. Yeah. And we hired new college grads. I trained them myself. My co-founder trained them himself. And they worked and they worked really hard. And they did really well. But when we got into hyper growth, we just outgrew a, good, a couple of them, a good number of them, actually. And I felt really bad about it. Like I felt so like, what did I do? Like, how did I fail them that they yeah. couldn't keep up? Because it's yeah. freaking hard to keep up. Yeah. And I would layer them and like, why didn't you give me that opportunity to get that a next job? Or like, dude, you got to be running to keep your current job. Yeah. And now, fast forward 10 years, 15 years, a lot of them are VPs at other companies. Yeah. That early experience forged something in them, even though they couldn't keep up with us, it created that thing of like, I could do that one day. I see yeah. what that takes. I've been there. 
So it's pretty cool to see, even though, I, that's why I think for people early in their career, startups are such an amazing opportunity yep. because you truly get to own things. You get to make impact like you can't make anywhere else. Will you have high risk of getting fired? You do, but don't take that personally. Like that's not, it's not about that. Those are, that's a freaking hard thing. You're playing in the big leagues here. Yeah, no, it's no joke. And I, and I think that that's part of that challenge is it's really difficult to keep up. Uh, but like you said, often I notice that where I like, I'm like so stressed about it and worry about it. And then I see them go somewhere else and flourish because it was like, Hey, I just, I need to take those lessons and kind of go to a new place and, and have more coaching and more experiences, and more learning. And so I think that's amazing. So one of the questions I was going to ask was what's your like top one or two leadership culture books that you're like, every leader has to read this every CEO. It's required reading. Every CEO. Well, one of the things we big believers in is teamwork. Yeah. I really believe a great team, uh, a great team, the whole is worth way more than the sum of the parts. It's an old African proverb. If you want to go fast, go alone. Yeah. If you want to go far, go together. I love that. I think teams are so much more resilient. You can go so much further. I actually think net, net, you do go faster. We don't always feel it in the moment. You're going to have yeah. more conflict. You're going to have, you're going to have, you got to set the ground rules. Yeah. There's a lot of things you need to do to make it work. It's, it yep. is actually hard. It's harder, especially if you have built a real heterogeneous, diverse team where people are actually coming in with really different perspectives, but you end up inoculating yourself against all these problems. So for that set, we really leverage the book by Pat Lencioni and the table group. Five dysfunctions of a team yep. and the advantage would be my top two. If you're, looking for an entree in it and you're looking to grow as a leader. I also really love the five temptations of a CEO. If you're in HR or a hiring manager, I love ideal team player. These are all really good books. We pretty much use them all. We use the advantage pretty, I, I hate to use the word, but we use it almost religiously as a company because I just believe so much in teamwork, but it's really hard for people who come in to adapt to it. There's a lot more things that end up happening as a team than what you would expect. I just think it's a better environment for people to thrive. You don't have to be fake. You don't have to play politics. You can actually be real. You can speak up and conflict and everyone's like, yes, this is great. And then you have hard moments like committing to decisions you didn't initially agree with uh, or that you might still dislike, but you got to commit and we're going to go after it and get yourself excited about it. They're hard parts that are kind of unnatural, yeah. but they make the company so much healthier. I think those would be the two, but the key is if you just read it, the advantage probably was the one that changed my leadership the most, but you have to read it at a point when you're hungry yeah, for growth. You want it. Yeah. If you don't, you'll just read it and it's another book on your shelf. It's amazing how sometimes you have those books. I think I read Five Dysfunctions of a Team, uh, probably read it two years ago, three years ago. And it was at that time, like we're scaling, we're growing. And you have those moments where you read books and you're and you just need it so it, it's like this aha moment of oh my gosh I can't this is describing my life <laughs> like does this person know me and what I'm going through because uh, it just hits so perfectly so uh, I love that is great recommendations uh, even as you start I was like I hope he says five dysfunctions of a team. Um, because I think it's exactly, it, it, it really does just kind of open people's minds to that kind of paradigm. Yep. And it's also, they really are big believers in the idea of organizational health. 
And for yeah. me, my personal why is to help people become who they were made to be so they can change the world for the better. And I think an environment of a healthy organization helps people to thrive. And that's a big deal. Because when people thrive, when your employees thrive, all good things come out of that. Innovation comes out of that. Working for customers comes out of that. Your customers feel it. They feel, yeah. feel it in the product. When, there's a, when you have a company full of people who are founder-level passionate, you feel it. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, yeah. I, I think that that's one of the things that is just, it's such a, there's such a difference between an organization that is bought into that and that hasn't. Uh, and, and it's hard to, to kind of see that. Were there any points, and I want to know this as much as anybody else, where, where do you feel like uh, were those like milestones of growth? Could be people, could be whatever, where you were like, man, that really started to hit. I've noticed kind of a funny comparison, but we have four daughters and first children are really hard. And second was like, Oh, that wasn't too bad. Cause now we're kind of used to it. And then three was like, Oh my gosh, there's three of them. There's only two of us. And then four was like, eh, that's not that bad. Um, I have noticed that past 20 people, uh, and this is one of our coaches has taught us that you pass 20 people and you pass kind of more of an ad hocracy, you can do things as uh, as kind of a very small team. You talk all the time, and then you pass twenty people, and it gets really hard because now it's more of a bureaucracy. Where have been those milestones for you guys? Where you're like, "Oh my gosh, this is a different game we're playing. We're now playing yep. chess instead yep. of checkers." At, at thirty people is when we started hiring a leadership team. Okay, and at least like some leaders besides us. Yeah. I had think I had the twenty direct reports, and that was insane. That's a very yes. not fun <laughs> situation. Yeah. Uh, and then when we hired, the first executive team we hired was not good. And so that was a big mess. And we scaled from 30 to 100 with that team and had to undo a lot of that. The, then I figured out what a real good executives are like. And that when, at that point, uh, at that point, we were able to actually scale more healthily, but we still kind of got stuck around the 60 to 70 people mark for quite a while. It wasn't until we put this culture, really putting the advantage in place and me learning how to scale as a leader and how to really delegate well, like with the management team, I was a big part of the problem too, let's just clear. <laughs> uh, and I just didn't know how to do it. I tend, you know, like a lot of founders, I tend to be Atlas. I hold all the weight on my shoulders and I don't want to actually give the real scary things because what if they screw it up? Yeah. Or is that too much to ask of them? Is it fair yeah. for me to ask that? And you realize there's a power when you ask something of someone, the ability for them to step into that bigger role, it's actually a gift. It can yeah. be a gift. You're doing it on the right motivation. And I, I think for us, that, that was the key, was giving the right team and being able to actually delegate and me growing as a leader so that I could delegate well. That changed the game for us completely. Yeah. So you know, now we're at the you know, 120 or so people scaling towards 200. I don't know what the next break point's going to be. We're probably already starting to hit some of it. There's a lot of places where we don't have enough structure, enough process in yeah. place. So things are just too much manual things, too many inefficiencies. That's pretty normal as you grow. So you have to start hiring in people who know how to build. Them. Yeah, that, that is, uh, I think that is what's so challenging. Exactly what you said. You get into it and all of a sudden you shift from, 
you know, you're, I came from the marketing side of things. And then all of a sudden you're, you're like, Oh, I'm, I'm really not marketing anymore. I'm, I'm like running a company, building an organization, trying to get teams to work together. It's a whole shift of mindset. So totally. And you've got to create space to develop yourself. You've got to bring in mentors. You've got to do something. Otherwise you are going to get the company will get ahead of you. And you're like, Oh my gosh, can't keep up. Yeah. Love it. Well, th this has been amazing. What What's next? Like, what are you guys working on now? Uh, or what's a personal goal that, that you're yep. setting for yourself of like, here's where you want to head? Yeah. Ultimately, our company today, you know, we're great for what we do. We're great for making photo books. And, but we're kind of in a niche spot where there's like super creative, high design books. They're amazing. But my feeling is we have these such big unsolved problems. We all take a lot of photos and they just sit in our phones. Yeah. Mostly the stories behind them are lost. Like even I just went to Mexico or I just went to Tahoe. Like if I were to try to show you the best photos, it's kind of a pain. Unless yeah. you unless you're the people who obsess over them and favorite and do all those things, which guess what? They're already making photo books. So yeah. the rest of the world, someone needs to solve this problem. So that's what we're working on is how can we make sense out of the photo mess and turn that into stories that you can share and relive for generations to come. Yeah, and that that's what we're working on now. And it's a big, hairy problem. And we're throwing after all these crazy technologies, generative AI being one. And who the heck knows what's going to come out of it? But we're <laughs> excited. Yeah, it's no, that's a, I love that. I think that's a. Uh, I always love when uh, I think as a startup, you you grow and scale and all of a sudden you come across kind of your BHAG. That's this like, oh, my gosh, that's this huge, audacious goal. Uh, and that's a really tough problem. Uh, I think uh, I am a personal, like, I kind of feel that I don't share a ton on social media. And so I have those moments of why am I even taking these pictures? Uh, what am I going to do with them? Am I going to, and some of that is years later, you kind of look through them. Um, and it's interesting. Like one of the things I think we talk about that's interesting as a family is we've lost because we delete my wife, any picture she doesn't like just deletes. And I'm like, some of my favorite pictures as a kid were these like kind of mistake pictures where we're all being crazy and you kind of see the reality. And we've we've gotten rid of all of that because now we just, oh, I don't like that. Delete that. Delete that. Which is funny because the storage capacity of our phone is so huge. And then the cloud, there's no reason to be deleting. Right. But we have this kind of psychological shift around what photos we keep where back then you yeah. kept everything because you paid. $20 to develop the 24 photos or $10 or whatever it was. So that's a big, yeah, you're right. Big change, big shift. You're totally right. It's a great observation. I think the Instagram, the Instagramization, I don't know if that's a word, yeah. of photos where it's all like photo photography as performance. It's a yes. performance art now. Whereas before, you're right, it's a lot more candid. And it's those candid moments that actually put you in the moment. Yeah. I love it. That's great. Well, uh, we always shoot for like a 20 minute and we're already at 32. So time flew. That was, that was awesome. Uh, what, what can the listeners do? What would be your call to action? Obviously go to mixbook.com and make yeah. a, make a book for your family member. Anything else you'd ask them to, to do to help you guys out? Yeah, of course we'll give a code as well. You can share with your awesome. listeners and I'll, I'll come back to you that with that via email. And I would say, of course, any feedback you have. Okay. Mixbook, send it to me, Andrew at mixbook.com. I'm easy to reach and would love it. We really take that stuff seriously. And that's, that's how we build 
feedback from entrepreneurs is especially important. Yeah. Because we, we tend to be a lot more picky and have a lot of more <laughs> interesting ideas. Yes. I love <laughs> so I love it. that. Okay. Well, everyone go get a mix book. We'll have uh, in the show notes uh, a code for all the listeners, which thank you for doing that. Uh, and thanks for coming on. Uh, I, I feel like more than anyone, I was like, oh, I got to read that. I got to do that. That's a good point. So it was very, very educational for me as well. Awesome. Thanks, Jay. I really enjoyed it and appreciated your insights as well. It's a yeah. cool thoughts at the end there on photography. Love it. Well, thanks again for coming and uh, we'll talk again soon. Yep. Sounds thanks, good. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.